Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I am doing great. Today is a fantastic and inspirational episode that's going to get everyone fired up about plant conservation. Joining us from Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden is Dr. Jason Downing, and he is here to talk about the Million Orchid Project. It is a native orchid reintroduction program that focuses on getting kids, students, municipalities involved in orchid conservation in urban areas. It is a model program that everyone needs to learn about, and it's doing amazing things for both people and the planet at the same time. I will not do this justice in the intro. I'm going to let Dr. Downing tell you all about it, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jason Downing. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Jason Downing, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. But first, how about we start off with an introduction? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. All right. Well, again, thanks for having us, uh, well, me today, but uh, representing Fairchild. I'm the orchid biologist with Fairchild. So pretty much anything orchid related, including the Million Orchid Project, which I think we'll spend a little bit of time talking about today, is under my purview. Um, so really, uh, it, it's it, it's a program that not only includes uh, conservation of orchids, but also research, education, and all those things kind of wrapped up into one. And it's really an amazing program and to see how it's grown and scaled up over time. And uh, so that's kind of what I do. Awesome. Yeah, it's an amazing program and truly, I mean, one of a kind, at least in this country, it is fantastic. So I'm I'm pumped to finally be able to talk about it. But what brought you to where you are today? I mean, were plants always of interest to you? Were orchids a big part of your life growing up? I mean, where did all of this kind of get started? That's a great question. So uh, I'm still trying to figure out how, you know, we I've ended up at the place I am and uh so I have a lot of, you know, when it comes to young people, you, not having it all figured out is something that I actually went through yeah. and I uh, had some experience with. And um, so actually, um, I didn't have a lot of exposure to plants early on. Um, I grew up uh, in Kansas City, from Midwest, uh, and uh, sports were really important to me and music at the time. And uh, <laughs> I really didn't really think much about biology. And to be perfectly honest, where I grew up, uh, science was really only relegated to like the, the health industry. The, right. the, the medical field, so things like nurse or doctor. So uh, the concept of ecologist, let alone a botanist, was was completely not even on my radar. Uh, probably all the way through high school. Hmm. Um, well, I had a chance to you know attend university. I went to the University of Kansas, where I actually was a music major um, oh. when I first started. So uh, very different again than in the science realm. But uh, we're really in you know got me working with plants and really more more properly ecology and working with uh, science was an experience I had in a undergraduate course. So most majors, you have to take a uh, uh, science course of some type as one of your, you know, general requirements. And so I was kind of in that, in that boat and didn't really think much of it. So I actually took a conservation biology course and I had a really amazing professor, an amazing TA that had a bunch of us jocks and uh, you know, non, you know, music guys and non, uh, science people out in the forest. Um, and we were actually participating in a, uh, classroom activity where we were actually, uh, looking at, uh, water quality. But I just remember having this moment in the forest where I'm like looking around, like, this is a job. Like you're not in a hospital. You're not surrounded by, you know, sick people and patients or in a cubicle. 
So it really just, it blew my mind that there was this amazing field where you could be outdoors. And I always kind of had that outdoor bug. Uh, even when I was younger, I grew up, you know, still relatively close to the country where, you know, we were, we'd explore the forest, like many, mm. many of, I'm sure your other guests have had the same experience and flipping rocks and catching tadpoles and all that stuff that kind of always was in me. But uh, understanding that it was actually a profession or a career path, that was something I hadn't been exposed to. And uh, um, the, the lady who actually took us out is still, uh, I keep in touch with her, but um, it literally changed my night. And overnight, I, I switched my major, changed my life. And overnight, I switched my major to biology. Wow. And I pressed through a, a four-year program in two years at the University of Kansas. And uh, it was brutal, but uh, I survived. <laughs> and, um, and and then I, of course, uh, through uh, doing a little bit of undergrad research uh, during that tenure, um, I learned I definitely wanted to do the graduate school thing. And then that's what brought me to South Florida and working more directly with plants. I had an opportunity to do graduate work. Uh, started at the University of Miami, uh, where I was the assistant curator for the Gifford Arboretum. And that was my first um, kind of intense opportunity to work with plants hand on and really just changed my life from there. Um, I ended up doing my master's work, working with rare native plants of Florida, and most of my PhD work in orchids. So it's definitely a winding trail. And I, I talked to a lot of our younger folks saying, you know, you're not going to have it all figured out. Uh, the key is really to explore as many options as you can. And then if you're lucky enough, one of those might just stick. Wow. Yeah. I mean, stories like yours, I love putting out to the world because you do get this sense of like, it's a race. You got to figure it out right away. You got to know at an early age and boy, if you figure it out already, uh, let me know what that's like. Cause it's yeah, like, I don't exactly. know if there's a day where I don't feel a little bit like I'm floundering. <laughs> Or unsure of yourself, absolutely. And, you know, that means you're always working. And uh, science is also really rewarding that way. You know, it's pretty clear from the beginning when you, be, when you kind of have a career in research, you're never going to have the answers. So yeah. as soon as you uh, work on one project, it's going to open up Pandora's box with another thousand plus questions that you're still going to have to tackle. So uh, I always say personality type, if you want to have it nice, gift wrapped in a bow, you know, research may not be for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, because it, you never kind of have that moment, but it's the climb. I think that most of us are into Sure. Yeah. It's those, those elements of discovery. And so how did you start getting into, you know, more of the rare plant work, the more conservation focus? I mean, it sounds like that was kind of where your, your, your career was taking you, but you know, the million orchid project is its own thing. That's very different. And so how did all of this sort of come together, uh, to, to be what it is today? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh so there's kind of a couple pieces i actually happened to be during my phd um when i was doing that at uh, florida international university i was working with uh my advisor dr hong lu and she uh is a conservation biologist and uh introduced me first to uh working with rare plant species orchids being, being mm. the prime group and so um i was lucky enough that she had an appointment at fairchild where i got to spend most of my graduate time uh in the laboratories and in the collections at fairchild and that really got my foot in the door and working actually through a fellowship program. So I was actually um, uh, sponsored or funded by Fairchild nice. uh, to work on my graduate research and trying to integrate it into education programs. So it was that kind of connection between my research and working directly with the education department um, that helped uh, lay some of the curriculum foundation and the model for uh, what became the Million Orchid Project. But the project itself actually... Um, uh, started kind of on the other side of the planet, or literally on the other side of the planet in Singapore. <laughs> oh, wow. The concept, believe it or not. And that was the inspiration behind it. So 
I've had a you know a lucky opportunity to visit Singapore you know a few times, as well as uh, a lot of my colleagues at the garden. And uh, for those that haven't been there, it's it's one of the most densely populated cities on the planet. Mm. It's a small country. Um, it, there's very few green spaces and natural areas, but the ones they do have, they're absolutely um, uh, top notch in how they maximize you know those few green spaces they have. Yeah. So. Um, my director and a, a good partner of ours, Dr. Martin Motes, uh, which uh, also is a big part of why the Million Orchid Project is what it is. Um, he's a famous uh, orchid grower and breeder here in South Florida. Uh, the director and Martin had taken a trip on their own over to Singapore, and they were visiting some of the orchid propagation labs at the National Orchid Garden in Singapore. And um, if you know anything, we'll talk, maybe talk a little bit about how orchids are propagated. But uh, when you grow orchids, uh, because of how many seeds they produce, which can be tens of thousands to millions per little fruit. <laughs> um, the ability to grow large numbers of orchids in laboratory is, is a possibility, but it really quickly becomes what the heck do you do with all these orchids. So in a nutshell, they had a bunch of leftover orchids that they were growing for the garden collection, and they kind of handed these off to uh, biologists and city parks workers huh. and say, well, hey, go plant some in the, back in the wild, traditional conservation, but also go throw a few up into the street trees and wayside trees and uh, city parks. And let's just see how they do. And to, to their surprise, they actually did quite well. Wow. And in some cases, some of the orchids planted in the city areas, urban areas, performed as well, if not better, than some in the natural area. Huh. So it just raised a lot of questions as a conservation biologist, kind of, you know, what is the limit to what we're doing? Right. And, um, right. And, but most importantly, it was a revolution in how they were beautifying their landscapes through conservation mm. and how... The whole country of Singapore itself is a botanic garden, and the city's within the botanic garden. And so that inspiration, um, uh, with the help of Dr. Lewis, became the Million Orchid Project. We very quickly thought, why not South Florida? We have our own amazing host. We have a beautiful subtropical climate, as you know, a densely populated urban core with beautiful green spaces and canopy trees that still remain and are being planted daily. And um, we have our own host of native orchid species that once kind of blanketed and were iconic in this region, but were largely lost due to poaching and habitat loss. Mm. So uh, we were able to pipeline. We were basically able to tap directly into our education programs and uh, through my work, working with schools, develop a curriculum and a model where we could get students and the general public involved in orchid conservation. That is so that's kind awesome. Of, uh, quick, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I covered all the issues, but uh, no, it's a good uh, overview. How it all came about, yeah. And then it's become something even crazier than that, <laughs> as I'm sure we'll cover. I, I mean, that's what's but, so, yeah, great. It's a little new, it's a little old, and a little you know far, and a little bit of close. Everything is kind of wrapped in this program. Yeah, and it's one of those ideas that just gains momentum, and when you put talented folk behind it. You know, the sky's the limit. And what's awesome too is, you know, generally when you hear about orchids, it's kind of like a, oh boy, we got to be careful. Let's get this in just perfect conditions, perfect this, perfect that. And I love there's sort of a cavalier nature about this. No, let's make a bunch of them. Let's bring them to schools. Let's get children doing this. Let's get the community involved in this. Let's put them in urban centers. And why not? You know, Like you said, like if you're doing the propagation right, you can get lots of opportunities to learn from, correct? Absolutely. And you're, you're right on, you know, so we really, I like to call it a modern twist on conservation. Let's, <laughs> let's be real. Let's be real. Um, we're losing green spaces, you know, or natural areas by the, by the second around the world. Um, the younger people in particular are going to be looking at a very drastically different environment. So we're talking more urbanization. 
um, less green spaces, less natural, pristine natural areas, if you want to call it that. So we have to think about conservation in these areas. I mean, that's going to be the reality, yeah. unfortunately, or highly disturbed areas. And also thinking about putting the things that are most precious in the hands of maybe people that don't get trusted with a lot early on. And I was one of those kids, you know, I was a kid that didn't trust me, didn't want to give anything to you know, be broken or, you know, I'm going to run off with it. So I get it. But, um, but when you, when you hand a, a, a student, you know, uh, something that's rare and endangered and you're entrusting with that, they look at you like, really? Me? Like, really? Mm. Give this to me? And so that's a really life-changing moment. You know, um, not only, you know, I've gone back and met some of these students, like, yeah, I come back to the school, to school to like check on my orchid. Not like go to class, but like physically <laughs> go to the school to check on my orchid in some of these, you know, the rougher schools, you know, and, uh, you know, that's pretty amazing that, um, you know, just having the, you know, being responsible for something and having ownership in something that's precious and being part of this kind of bigger thing is something that can change things is really important to get kids early on and also having that laid in a foundation of science authentic science so they're getting yeah. that experience as well they know what so so the beauty of the million orchid is we want everyone involved in every step of the conservation action from the genetics of the plants all the way to tracking them long term and that's what the million orchid project tries to achieve that's fantastic yeah and and you know thinking about life in an urban center it's getting increasingly difficult for some folks to actually escape the urban center and get out into nature especially as more and more gets developed it gets pushed farther and farther to sort of the periphery and you know what it takes to see some of these orchids in the wild it's even the biologists struggle these days that are going out and monitoring these populations so now to bring that into the urban center and like you said, put it in the hands of people that are often written off by even their teachers sometimes is just, right. it's phenomenal. But, you know, again, you just kind of go like, who thought of this? This is amazing. Yeah. So, you know, well, society's kind of, you know, showing us the path, crowdsourcing the science. Yeah. Duh. Like this is the future. This is, allows us to scale everything up. Um, you know, my, you know, my traditional conservation work maybe deep in the jungles of China or wherever I'm at at the time or South Florida and hidden in the swamp. This is where most conservation takes place, right? Right. With a small team of scientists hidden from everyone, right? Hidden yeah. from you, hidden from the general public. Um, you know, what we can accomplish with a small team of scientists is, is really a drop in the bucket if we start involving the public. I mean, it, to put it in order perspective, you know, we could do maybe a few thousand orchids in a few years. Uh, typically in some of our conservation efforts, uh, restoration efforts going on natural areas, uh, we can do 20,000 with the help of the public and students. So um, the scale of what we're doing and, you know, it, and there's a lot of benefits to that. And I think Fairchild is really great at uh, thinking about what you just said and about as we urbanize, where are these green spaces? What are the green spaces? So the real vision of the garden recently has been thinking about all of Miami, again, like Singapore as a garden. <laughs> So we are now in every municipality with the Million Orchid Project, with other programs, to try to add inherent value to their landscapes, to their green spaces, to add orchids, to add native plants, um, to create this garden. Because I live, I'm in South Beach right now, and uh, <laughs> I walk outside, I have no yard, right? So yeah. uh, the landscape is my yard, you know. So the park is becomes my garden, and uh, that's I think the way we should we should think about uh, moving on in the future with our urban cores in particular. Definitely. And, you know, growing up, at least for me, 
the city was kind of talked about as this unnatural landscape, sort of a toxic place where really only people and like some raccoons, coyotes and pigeons can survive. (laughs) And of course, millions of rats. Uh, But, you know, it's really starting to change. And I'm happy to see that because the more biologists go out and start paying attention to the city, engaging members of the community within these urban environments, you realize life can thrive there. It's just different. You know, there's different rules of ecology playing but we're not reinventing the landscape. It's just figuring out what works and what doesn't. And that's what's also interesting because I'm sure with every school you engage, every person you engage, and every seed pod brought into Germany, it's data. It's helping you understand what these organisms need while at the same time crowdsourcing the, the, the act of actually gathering the data. You're absolutely right. We This is a natural experiment. Um, <laughs> and that's really exciting, you know, because we didn't know it could work. And uh, we're happy to say, you know, five, six years into the program, uh, we're now having flowering plants in wow. urban core of Miami again for the first time we think in 60 plus years. Um, easy. So, you know, but again, that you're right. We're pushing the limits and uh, that's the risk part of it. And right. that's a lot of science. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a lot of the science that doesn't get necessarily funded, too, because, right, <laughs> because big federal agencies want sure things. And uh, but it's going to take high risk, high reward ventures, I think, to really solve the problems at the scale we're seeing things increase, you know, I mean, um, conservative methods, I don't know, are going to be as appropriate mm. just due to the rate of change we're, right. we're seeing right now. Um, but again, a lot of those conservation principles apply to what we're doing in the urban landscape as well. And as you mentioned, data is collected meticulously by all sectors of, of the public to help drive, uh, our protocols really in real time, Yeah, which is, which is cool about the program. You know, we can roll out a, a question, a hypothesis to our students each school year, and then we could have answers at the end of the school year with a massive data set. Dang. High statistical power. So, um, again, having these replicates and all, all, all that is, again, just adding the rigor of the science to what we're doing. And we're finding these, these orchids actually are quite resilient, um, a little bit tougher <laughs> and hardier than we thought. And uh, some aren't. And also, what tree are they best on? You know, so all these parameters we're trying to, to do, but also, um, you know, capture that data in an informative way that's useful for, for scientists as well. Certainly, yeah, I, I agree. I feel like the sort of historical, well, let's wait, let's make sure we'll test this one thing this first five years, then the next, it, we, we're going to run out of time way quicker than we actually get answers to any of those things. But that does bring up a question of how do you make guided decisions to kind of hedge your bets a little bit with these risk-taking strategies? Like, how are you deciding on which species to work with first and foremost? Right. So that's a great question. So we needed to look at what remnant populations were around before we start the program. So mm. we, we selected species that, uh, one, were in close proximity to what we thought was a historical population. So in other words, um, it's really important we don't move our genetics around too much. Mm. So say we source a seed capsule from Miami-Dade, we want those seeds to stay in that region of Miami-Dade. We don't, uh, with all, you know, uh, with we try our best not to move them to Broward, for instance, Broward sure. County or Northern County, even though that same species may appear because it's probably a distinct genotype and population. Huh. So we, we first off by selecting species that are in the proximity, but also we're going to, usually for the urban center, we wanted to get things that we knew could handle dry conditions, so mm-hmm. xeric species, so species that we knew were hardy in terms of uh, we're in either dry, seasonally dry forests or, or coastal. So things that were really in hot sun, those are those are going to be great plants for the urban core, um, simply because um, 
most of the data shows climatic data that uh, urban centers have this heat island effect mm. in which you're going to tend to have on average warmer and drier conditions. So we really want to select plants that weren't going to be water loving things that are in deep sloughs or swamps, <laughs> uh, you know, that are really just spoiled by perfect, you know, stable buffered temperatures and lots of uh, ambient humidity, because that's not the situation. But the good news is we actually have an amazing palette of these neotropical dry forest orchids hmm. uh, because the extreme southern tip of South Florida is actually part of the Caribbean basin ecologically. Uh, we have much more in common in Miami with the Bahamas uh, and Cuba than we do really with, you know, Orange County and in, in, sure. in central Florida for, for the most part. So um, a, a lot of uh, these species that also occur in the Caribbean are these really kind of hot, tough little orchids. And so we started with a, uh, about 10 species that we thought would do well in kind of these very dry, you know, seasonally dry conditions and kind of really harsh conditions. And um, and then we start to increase our palate for things uh, maybe that are a little bit more uh, sensitive to, to drought and, and light, and heat, but maybe would be good for certain situations where, say, there's a park with really dense canopy, mm. you know, that has a really lush, you know, kind of, you know, very old forest uh, uh, still remaining. So then we end up, you know, incorporate some other things that um, that don't maybe uh, prefer a little bit more shade. But uh, really, our selection process began with things that were in proxy, um, usually things that we could source right there at Fairchild. If we knew they're growing at Fairchild, they're likely to be able to grow a mile down the road. Fair. Um, but also thinking things that are kind of this uh, xeric or dry-loving genotype or, or population. But now we're sourcing things wherever our partners are. So, you know, hmm. as we take on partners on the West Coast or um, Ohio or where, where oh, you name wow. it, Washington, D.C., we need to take on plants that are appropriate species that are native to their regions. So... That's kind of a new, uh, a new part of the program as we as we scale up and we move beyond our footprint in South Florida. That's really exciting. And before we kind of go to what you're doing to move the the needle forward into other areas, you know, you're again South Florida, very specific type of climate, but it opens the door to uh, different life habits of orchids. You know, as a more temperate person growing up, I thought all the orchids that weren't bought at the grocery store grew in the ground. But then you go to places like South Florida, the Fakahatchee, and you see like, oh, yeah, there's epiphytes. They can exist on this continent. Um, And so were you really working with epiphytes first? And has it been or, you know, was it a mix? And then was there a challenge in thinking about the terrestrial versus epiphyte lifestyle in this this sort of effort? Yeah, so that's a great question. And um, yes, so we work with both. Um, but uh, again, the majority of the plants we're working with are epiphytic species. Okay. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, um, the, it, it's easy real estate for us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you'd be surprised getting a permit pulled for a park to plant in the ground is much different than planting in a tree. Oh yeah. Um, so so yeah, the bulk of our species, I'd say about um, you know three fourths of our species are these epiphytic species, which just get in the southern tip of Florida. Some of which are extremely rare, like our, our native cowhorn orchids, sort of podium hmm. statum, um, our, our native muleer orchids, which are really state endangered level species. Um, but we do have a few ground species as well, or, or terrestrial orchid species, um, which we profile and which are also very unique, uh, really found nowhere else in the southern peninsula of Florida, um, some of these tropical ground orchids. And another reason for that is because uh, as part of the education program and being able to be kind of um, able for anyone to participate, we had to think about schools that didn't, frankly, have trees. 
And <laughs> yeah. some schools just don't have trees. Uh, some of our more urban schools or urban or areas that are in kind of uh, you know these urban deserts, for better for a lack of a better yeah, word, yeah. these schools need to be able to participate. So we need a species that can perform well in a pot or maybe a raised bed garden on a roof. And this is where our terrestrial workers came into play. Um, and uh, they were able to fit you know schools that didn't have canopy trees. And um, and they, and they're just as wonderful. And actually, um, and in terms of growing them for our tropical species. There's really not a whole lot of difference between our epiphytes mm. and our terrestrial species to answer kind of difficulty in terms of the micropropagation aspects. Um, so growing them out up to something large enough. Now, when you start adding the temperate ground orchids, then you get in a whole nother layer of complexity because of the dormancy, right? right. It's cold up there and these things go dormant. So we're thinking of all types of clever ways to, to uh, <laughs> for the kids to maybe freeze the orchids one day is my dream mm. uh, with some of our temperate schools. So they're putting their orchids in the freezer in the classroom. I think that'd be a really neat thing to do in the, yeah. in the mountain spring and regenerating them. Um, so, uh, but yeah, we have to think of, uh, it, it's very species specific, but uh, for the most part, our terrestrial ground orchids and our epiphytes tend to behave, behave the same way hmm. in terms of how we propagate them. So we're lucky in that part because it's not always the case. Yeah, that's awesome. And so when you show up to a school, what is this process like? I mean, are these kids going from seed to, you know, a little sterile hood or the kind of bringing in flasks and letting them see the process sort of at a certain stage i mean what what is it like from start to finish for them yeah so there's a number of ways students participate each year um so we have everything from the the little ones like elementary school uh which will take uh you know plants uh that are already in pots that are able to <laughs> plant directly out to their schoolyard and um or their homes if, if wherever they want, want to plant them we give them the care sheet and they rear them up over the school year, all the way to the Fairchild Challenge program, which uh, each year, high school, middle school needs to tackle a specific research question. Mm. So depending on the year of participation, you may have, so in the early years, we were working a lot in class. So we'd give students, you know, uh, three different treatments of, of, of different plant growth factors and, and hormone cocktails, and uh, they would test the growth response on the same species. So that's the micropropagation, the laboratory side of the propagation. So what's the best recipe um, cocktail for each of the orchid species we're rearing to get the best product? Um, so many years, that's where we accept the schools up with complete grow racks. They'd have what we call the mid-botany lab, which was uh, growth racks um, where they would rear them off in the final uh, chamber in their final flask. Um, and then they would plant them into greenhouse humidity domes. And then they would finish them in humidity domes on their growth racks wow. and plant them out at the end of the school year. Uh, more recently, as the program has developed, uh, the push is to get uh, flowering plants into every school that participates. So now that we've kind of built up a supply of larger plants, we can now provide all the schools this year through the challenge um, the, uh, the uh, plants large enough to attach directly to the tree at the beginning of the school year and track and monitor the root attachment, wow. growth, fecundity, survivorship. So we, we've transitioned a little bit. Uh, so each year for the challenge program, uh, which runs all year and they collect data throughout the entire school year and present uh, their their results and some product at the end of the year. Um, we ask a lot of different questions that we need to answer to scientists. Then we have the STEM lab program and that's our mobile tissue culture lab. <laughs> so you may, you may have noticed that uh, the, the cool part that all the students missed was the laboratory work, right? You yeah. need to scrub up like you're in a surgical office. If you're not familiar <laughs> with micropropagation, uh, you know, you have all your sterile equipment and you're in the laminar flow hood and you're you know, you're doing the sterile technique and uh, transferring the orchid uh, either from seed or, or, or up to the next size and container. 
Um, so students never really had that opportunity to do that unless they did a field trip to the garden. So that's where we teamed up with the University of Miami, uh, their built and design program. And uh, we were given a, uh, through Miami Dade Public Schools, we were given a decommissioned school bus. Nice. Uh, we like to say they gave us the least sterile thing on the planet. And we handed it to, uh, we handed it off to uh, the professionals, I like to say, at the University of Miami, these senior students in their undergrad of their architecture program. Huh. And their job one summer, this is uh, five years ago now, uh, five or six years ago, was to basically convert this dust-filled, disgusting chewing gum from the 1980s uh, <laughs> bus into a beautiful work of art, which they did. Uh, we now have a mobile tissue culture laboratory called the STEM Lab, which has two laminar flow hoods, uh, which each can uh, fit three students. So we can do six students at a time. And this will visit, uh, it'll make about 70 visits a year and around 30 schools each year, wow. uh, mostly middle school. And we can generate about 20,000 plants on that STEM lab alone. So not only is it usually informative, it's a lot of fun and uh, the students get to do really high level science, but also it's hugely productive for our efforts uh, to meet our goal of a million orchids. So um, those are just a number of ways the students participate. Um, you know, we and we kind of have everything in between, but those are the three core programs mm. in which students can uh, get involved in the program. I really like the scalability of that because it can kind of feed into this adaptive process based on time, effort, age, you know, really what whatever you need to kind of bring to the table, you, you have flexibility there, which is important for something like this. I can't imagine being rigid and expecting it all to kind of come together right. in the end. <laughs> but it's also great that you had other students outside of the, the, the natural sciences doing, you know, getting involved here. I mean, that's the other part of this is, you know, I get emails or questions from folks that are like, you know, I'm doing this. This was my career choice. I feel like it's too late to turn the ship around and do a different track. But like, how is there ways these skills can be adapted to other conditions? And you, you never know. I mean, engineering, uh, architecture, anything like that, even just mechanical skills of putting things together is so valuable, especially when it comes to, you know, what you need to make orchid propagation work on a scale like you're attempting. Right. I mean, the techniques can be transferable. I mean, I the first thing I mentioned when folks come in the lab, they've never really been to maybe a garden, let alone seen a micropropagation laboratory, uh, is that these are the same skills that are going on in oncology laboratories, microbiology laboratories, and, uh, dental offices, and, you know, in, in COVID testing. I mean, this is the same equipment, the same uh, materials. Trust me, we have a shortage all the time <laughs> supplies. Uh, due to that, but uh, but you know, um, you know, these are the, these are applicable uh, techniques which you know are are just exposing people to science in general, yeah. and uh, and knowing plants are a huge part of that. Yeah, uh, there it's just not all human biology based. Um, that you know, plants are you know nothing's more important than plants to the state of Fairchild, and uh, you know, and if they could see that and understand the relevance of it, um, beyond maybe just propagating native orchids, uh, I think that adds some real value to to, to the layperson. Yeah, and again, putting a rare piece of nature back into a very human-dominated environment speaks volumes. And just the, the fact that kids are going back and measuring and, and wanting to tend to these things shows the value of doing that. And so in thinking about some of the species you've been working with, have there been surprises or are there any species that have really particularly taken to this sort of effort and, and being reintroduced into an urban environment? Definitely. Um, you know, uh, one of our best performers uh, still remains uh, in Cichlia tempensis, nice. which is our native Florida butterfly orchid. It is a 
tough little orchid. It's uh, it has probably the largest distribution of any orchid um, in North America. Epiphytic orchid, North America, you get all the way from the keys, you know, into Cuba, all the way up into uh, uh, nearly the Panhandle. Wow! So it has a really broad distribution. It's a tough little orchid, uh, and it, it just performs really well. Um, the only issue is it's a slow grower compared, mm. in comparison to maybe even some of our rarer things. Um, so it takes uh, around two years, two and a half years to get something up to size from seed. So it's about a year in the lab uh, for most of our workers, about a year in a uh, either a shade house or a greenhouse setting of some type, maybe even a few months, depending on the, the type of orchid. Uh, but that that uh, butterfly orchid is, is such a great performer. Um, and we've had some difficulty with some as well. Uh, our, our rare cowhorn orchid, our native cowhorn, mm. is the largest orchid in North America. Um, in terms of its actual sheer mass, one that's near and dear to my heart. I worked on that one for my PhD. Oh, a nice. lot of work in the Fat Cat Sheet that we talked about uh, with, uh, I think, some of your other guests with uh, Noel. Um, but uh, that one's been difficult. Um, and we've even had difficulty planting that back onto the natural areas. Yeah. So this may be a case where one of some of these orchids just want to uh, germinate with the mycorrhizal fungi. Not to get too sciencey, but I know you've had a Larry oh, on yeah, maybe. You're, or, you're good. Uh, that Larry until, uh, <laughs> so uh, we could talk about mycorrhizae, but that dependence on mycorrhizae, that obligate dependence on mycorrhizae, um, uh, may be an impediment to a certain a mm. number of these species from establishing um, as you know juveniles or young adults. They yeah. just, I, I, in my opinion, I think they really want to uh, grow symbiotically, start off on that tree symbiotically. So, so you know, that's been a little difficult, but still we've been able to successfully establish uh, hmm. a good number of them. Um, good. Again, it being one of our rarest, you know, plants in North America. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so, so we're, we're just now getting to maybe year three of collecting some robust demographic data um, through our app and through, uh, through some of the census work and the surveys our students continue to do. So, uh, we're definitely finding host tree preferences um, through the data hmm. and uh, also certain species which attach much quicker and perform a lot better. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're definitely finding trends, but definitely the butterfly orchid is the star of the show um, in terms of our epiphytes um, and everything else um, uh, don't perform near as well, but uh, we can still establish them yeah. successfully. But it's a little trickier. At Campensis, you can almost just glue right on the tree and it's, <laughs> you're good to go watered a few times uh, the other ones may take a little bit more watering like that to establish but the beauty is they're native so once they're yeah. rooted on and they're established there's no long-term maintenance needed uh for the most part so um that's again the beauty of kind of promoting these, these group of plants certainly and i mean rare plants are often rare for a reason so not everything is going to be this wonderful easy success story you but again those are the things we need to learn and i'm really excited about even just host tree preference. I mean, when it comes to the holistic ecosystem approach, I mean, just saying like, hey, maybe plant these trees if you want to consider this is, is an important thing. Right. All trees aren't created equal for orchids. So um, <laughs> uh, they're not as picky as you think. But uh, in hmm. general, we want to promote definitely uh, our hardwood natives. So our native hardwood trees, so things like our live oaks, hmm. our West Indian mahoganies, um, uh, things like that are going to be are going excellent trees, but orchids in general are our tropical orchids and our subtropical orchids. Uh, any rough bark hardwood tropical tree can do, and even a lot of palms hmm. are great for certain species that can handle the light. Um, so, but yeah, but again, there's certain parts on the tree, even that now the data is showing <laughs> north versus south orientation, horizontal versus trunk. These are all parameters which the students are looking into. I love it, and we hopefully will have answers to that soon. Um, 
but but yeah, there absolutely is a preference, and this can guide uh, you know some of our green space managers, other uh, city officials, yeah. and has guided them on in terms of kind of selections when they're thinking about urban canopy and uh, being appropriate for other things besides just the tree, you know. So Certainly. not just orchids, but bromeliads, ferns, and uh, you know, tillandsias and other or other epiphytes community, which is richer in South Florida, but it's hugely understudied. Yeah, I bet. So I'm really happy you brought up this idea of feedback to city land managers because, you know, the the city is the human environment and ecological processes are happening, but the human hand has to be involved at all points. And so that comes down to how do we replant trees? What tree selection are we doing? How are we managing these parks? And I'm sure the data you're collecting and for the stakeholders that do want to get involved, this is really useful to help kind of shape the sort of the planting and landscaping of the future for some of these areas. No doubt. Um, I mean, and, and to be honest, Matt, the enthusiasm has really been kind of unpredicted. We, we didn't expect this much enthusiasm hmm. from our, some of our municipal uh, partners. Um, they're really gung ho about the idea of, uh, again, of greening, greening up these areas and these, particularly in Miami, we've been really lucky in that a lot of our public officials have, have really put a focused effort in supporting our program and cleaning nice. up uh, uh, their existing landscapes and improving their, their landscapes. Um, but the orchids, uh, I think, are going to be really a pivotal part because um, in, in order to do a lot of this, uh, most important, we need canopy trees. And yeah. uh, that's probably one of the most uh, important things I think we can do um, as, as we urbanize the entire United States is planting trees. Yeah. Um, trees seem to be the foundation uh, for, you know, rehabilitating some of these these uh, you know these areas which are have been have kind of lost nature. Mm-hmm. So I think starting with the canopy trees and getting a, a great you know variety of native canopy trees is the first step. And uh, so we you know and that just helped kind of promote uh, the importance of it. So you know um, when a public uh, works official is proposing you know uh, planting native trees in a park, they can say, if we do this, we can also add, we can add our orchids. We can add, you know, so it adds another layer of value. Um, yeah. I think just having the tree alone. Um, and if you build it, they will come. So, you know, <laughs> you have nesting sites and you have uh, uh, tillandsias and bromeliads and maybe orchids popping up naturally now hmm. once you put in certain selections. And then also what the orchids are unique in that they have all these very specialized relationships with other organisms. So they're, they're almost like the canary in the coal mine kind of a certain <laughs> right, yeah. that. They have, they're, they're tentacles involved in so much that's going on in the, in the ecosystem, uh, whether it's relationship with fungus, uh, the mycorrhizae, this very specialized symbiotic relationship where all, all the orchids in the world need a very, usually a very specific group of fungus in order for the seeds to germinate. So all the conditions appropriate for that fungus are kind of needed, mm. right? So... You have to have all the environmental, you know, the, the precipitation and the, and, the, and the humidity and all that stuff for the fungus to be there. Uh, then you have the interactions with pollinators, right? Mm. And a lot of orchids are cheaters or they're deceptive. <laughs> so the pollinators still have to eat, right? They're just getting cheated by the orchids. So now you need to plant the other host uh, um, foraging plants for the pollinators. So, you know, make creating a situation where orchids can thrive will also create an umbrella to where you're basically essentially kind of almost recreating the, the original um, system. Um, so you're, you're, you're making sure all of your understory forage plants are there. You're making sure the canopy trees are appropriate. Um, and so orchids are kind of unique in that, you know, using that one single organism, you can kind of really help you think uh, about how appropriately 
your planting and uh, what, what kind of design and also what kind of species selection you should have. Wow. Yeah. And I'm sure that bleeds into the educational side of this too, is it's such a perfect organism to choose because it really does teach ecology in ways that are exciting. I mean, how exciting is it to learn about deceptive pollination or these weird mutualisms you can't really see, but then the pieces you need. It's it's an ecosystem perspective for these kids that, again, are probably not exposed to it in any meaningful way in many aspects of their lives. Right. And is it, is it around? So uh, once we put the orchids out, are the pollinators around? Was yeah. the first question, right? So there's the, the next leading question. Are the Okay, we have flowers this year. This is great. We're all celebrating, but it, are they going to be pollinated? Um, uh, you know, is the next question. Uh, and sure enough, we have seen some sea capsules naturally wow. being produced. So that's a good sign that they're around. Maybe not the same densities or numbers, but they're around. Sure. And then maybe now that the seeds have been produced, is the fungus still around? <laughs> and so <laughs> now that we have all these seeds going around, are the appropriate fungus still around on the tree? And, and we're doing a lot of that research as well. And we're doing some really exciting research with our graduate students. And we're finding um, that actually these fungus are around. Whoa. So that's really hopeful and reassuring that, you know, if we get seed set, if we have reproduction uh, in these plants, that we will get germination, uh, you know, sporadically happening and we will get volunteers. So that these are all, you know, things that uh, the students are taking on. And uh, we're, we're hopeful, actually, believe it or not. We're more hopeful than ever um, <laughs> in that, you know, th- this, you know, that, you know, these specialized things can even survive in a urban plant cave. That is some of the most exciting news I could have expected to come out of this because I would imagine when you started this project going, you didn't know what was going to happen, but there's always that moment in conservation where you're like, this could be very depressing. (laughs) But one of the themes that runs through a lot of conservationists that I talk to is that message of hope that we just need to start paying attention and doing things a little bit better. It's not tear down the city. It's how do we make the city better? And that's exciting moving forward into a future where that's only going to be more of this world. You got it. And that, and you know, a lot of science is failure. You know, and so we, we, we that's, and, and trust me, these things die. Yes. Especially in school, especially in classrooms with dirt and germs and everything. But um, that's important that they, they get exposed to that early on. That uh, science is a lot of just trial and error. But the question is, what do you do once it fails? That's data. We look at that as data. <laughs> Why do you think it failed? Why? Uh, well, we went to spring break and we didn't water. <laughs> Well, probably a good reason, right? You know, so um, again, you know, so fancy water. I mean, it could be as basic as that. Um, You know, so, you know, even with the failures and the unexpected, we learn something. And um, and uh, we we have to we have to put that out right um, to the to the students immediately, as well with our partners. You know, Mm. Um, this isn't a uh, uh, the type of uh, project where, you know, we're just going to transform it into the National Orchid Garden of Singapore with our native orchids. <laughs> um, this, is, this is conservation. You know, you're going to have losses. We're going to have things that are going to get picked off by a blue jay or squirrels going <laughs> to munch it down. Uh, you know, there's another situations out there uh, that we're going to encounter, but it's um, what do we learn from that? So the next plant, we adjust. The next um, the, the next procedure, the next trial, we'll, we'll, we'll try to correct that, and each year it gets better. So, um you know, and it's hopeful, and everyone counts, to be honest. I yeah. mean, again, some things are just naturally rare. Yeah. And to be honest, I'd rather, you know, I mean, you know, 
we never should expect to be a million cowards, you know, in Miami, <laughs> but a handful is more than we had yesterday. Certainly. There were zero orchids at any of the sites we planted on, and now we have nearly 400,000 plants. Wow. So that's amazing in terms of conservation. Yeah. And um, in a number in a number of ways, both direct and indirect, which, uh, you know, we can talk about. But, you know, I think the 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 positives still outweigh the maybe the negatives of the uncertainty that it's it's such a worthwhile adventure to, to go down. And and you know the, it, and there's a lot of like again indirect benefits I think to the program which are going to come long term which um, are going to help wild populations. So Yeah. I've kind of on a tangent but <laughs> No, that's that's yeah. the beauty of podcasting, my friend and yeah, I mean, you're getting me jazzed. I, I'm getting like goosebumps thinking of the possibilities here. And talk about possibilities. You hinted at it already is sort of the, the expansion of this. I mean, moving north, moving west, east, wherever you want to go, it sounds like every city could have a million orchid project or some form of that. That's what we hope. Uh, pretty much everywhere on the earth where there's liquid water, you have an orchid species. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, pretty much everywhere, but Siberia, parts of Antarctica, excuse me, and, uh, and uh, Sahara Desert. Um, so outside of that, it's fair game. Um, and I think uh, our educational mod- model has been uh, reproducible. It's, it's pretty re- darn reproducible. Again, we've uh, piloted it out with a grant in cooperation with uh, um, Smithsonian and the Youth Access Grant, where we've actually piloted this program for uh, three years now in the D.C. area in the Virginia and Maryland, D.C. area, and um, using inserting their native species into our educational curriculum. But yeah, that's the dream. I mean, we have we have big goals beyond just Florida. Um, internationally, uh, partners that um, before COVID were lined up to kind of take on this, these programs and start sourcing material. Um, and so, yeah, it's absolutely reproducible. And I think also it's an opportunity to get um, a lot of our botanic garden and other institutions involved more in the, in, with the uh, public schools and with the general public. Um, through the Million Orchid Project, because, of course, we need partners in those regions to help source the plants, uh, to get permits and to grow them, mm. um, you know, in their facilities and then help spoke them out to uh, their neighboring schools as part of the program. Um, but, yeah, that's the dream is to have the Orchid Project everywhere. And, uh, nice. you know, even in some of those schools, you know, again, my my bucket list is uh, getting the lady slippers back in Central Park, oh, right? Man. With all the uh, with covering Central Park with lady slipper orchids and uh, slipper pediums and so these are the type of dreams we have. And I that's think, awesome. Uh, we'll, we're going to keep on trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the model seems to be working. And I hope from people hearing he about this. New York. Heard you say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got listeners up there. Don't worry. But All right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is so exciting because it is empowering. And, and when you think about even the network of partners you have in the garden sector, they can only do so much. But when you start crowdsourcing, giving it to the people understanding that you know we can learn from this even those failures are a teachable moment a learning moment man the sky's the limit and we really do need to get conservation in meaningful and and scientifically sound ways into the hands of more people because i don't think there's any way around getting us out of the mess we've created in modern times right and you know it helps working with a charismatic group of organisms let's sure. be perfectly honest it's, sure. not, it's not a hard sell you know <laughs> <laughs> always like you know it's, it's, it's kind of the pandas of the plant world right you know but, like you it's, know. Not a, it's not a hard sell <laughs> but uh but but this important you know these iconic kind of these romanticized organisms are probably organisms we need to target when getting the general public involved and interested in plants i mean um yeah i love grasses 
I love poems. I love all types of plants, but you know, uh, you know, things people recognize they have cultural inherent value to, I think are going to be great target things to plants to work with. Yeah. You know, it's a plant uh, oriented talk, but uh, you know, it, we're going to have to do a little bit of, you know, marketing, uh, yeah. good marketing, I think to help get conservation more, you know, on the, on the mainstream and more uh, noticed. So orchids, I think are a great organism to work with. Big time. Yeah. I mean, you got to understand we have to meet the public where they're at, not expect them to get on the same page as us right away. And it's, it's moments like this, it's charismatic organisms like this that, you know, and again, orchids are charismatic. They're beautiful. Everyone can fall in love with them, but they also can teach us things. And that's, what's great about choosing that as well is, you know, what's good for orchids can be pretty darn good for the environment too. (laughs) Yeah. And we're starting with the hard one. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of all downhill once you choose us, successfully done some orchids, you know, work with orchids is kind of all downhill. So, uh, you know, we're starting with some, with a challenging organism as well. I love um, it. In many respects. So, I agree. So much respect for you, your colleagues, and every child and teacher that gets involved with this, every you know, municipality, stakeholder, uh, land manager that wants to get jazzed and, and get involved. I mean, this is really a community effort. And so with that in mind, people that want to learn more about the Million Orchid Project, more about your research, what's going on at Fairchild and other gardens, where do you recommend they go looking? You can always reach out to us at Fairchild Garden, um, our website. You can, um, if you're interested in, if you're in the, in the area and you're interested in purchasing native orchids for your yard, that's always a request we're getting. We're now kind of in that point hmm. where we're helping uh, local residents get appropriate native orchids for their yard. Uh, you can go to our, uh, you can be referred to our online sales. For general information on the Million Orchid Project, you can contact me directly at jdowning, D-O-W-N-I-N-G, at fairchildgarden.org. And um, we can explore um, uh, what you have in mind. Uh, we have a uh, a program really that can fit anyone's needs. And, uh, even if you're out of the state of Florida, uh, we have a lot of, you know, partners outside of the state and we're happy to engage and discuss more. And, uh, we're just excited to spread the word and get other people's involved. So. Excellent. And I'll save everyone the trouble. I'll put the links in the show notes for this episode. Uh, but Dr. Downing, this is inspirational. It's exciting. I think everyone listening is going to be jazzed and want to get involved in some way. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about it, but also for doing everything you do for orchids, for kids, for just the ecosystem that we all have to live in. Well, on behalf of all the hundreds of thousands of participants, we thank you. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just uh, just helping kind of keep the ship afloat. But uh, it, again, this wouldn't be possible without all of our amazing student partners and Uh, We thank you for letting us spread the word. Of course. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and go get those million orchids out there. All right. We'll do a follow-up after the million one. Perfect. I love it. Awesome. We'll do a special episode. (laughs) All right. All right. Good. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Yo, how cool is the Million Orchid Project? It is so amazing to hear all of their successes, all of the things they're learning, and the ways they're getting people involved in orchid conservation and really ecosystem conservation. It's crowdsourcing plant conservation and we desperately need more emulation of this sort of program. I thank Dr. Downing for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us and I mean it when I say go check the show notes for all of the relevant links for what we talked about today. This program is just too cool and I can't sing its praises loud enough. If you're enjoying conversations like this, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. My patrons help make this show possible. I could not be doing this week after week 
without their support. So thank you to everyone who supports the show already and consider doing it today. If a monthly contribution isn't your thing, consider picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, or some stickers. All of those links are in the show notes as well, so go check them out over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But that is it for me this week. Thank you all for listening. Hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. Till next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.